Hey, it's Michael Waits. Every week I do a podcast with Chuyen that we call Keeping It Real. We talk about fintech, about building a business, just about entrepreneurship in Southeast Asia. And this week we're going to switch it around a little bit. We're going to tell a story about another entrepreneur, Angeline Tham. So Chuyen, thanks for participating on the other side of the podcast, helping me facilitate and ask questions and just have a great conversation. And Angeline, thanks for doing this as well. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me in the show. It's hey, my Michael. pleasure. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Angeline, do you want to give a little bit of background, just a little bit about like where you're from, where you were raised, and then I want to get into sort of the deeper part of the story. Sure. Um, I was born and bred in Singapore, um, and then I went overseas to New York to do my university. So I, um, I had a business degree in the Sternberg Business School. Um, after that, I came back to Asia uh, and I joined JP Morgan. I was there for about five years. After that, I decided that it really wasn't something for me. I actually left the business. Uh, actually, no, I left JP Morgan to start a business actually with Chuyen here. So <laughs> I, I managed to con, con her into doing this startup journey with me, which turned out to be quite a ride, right, Angeline? Yes. I believe you followed in my footsteps into banking first. <laughs> no, that's you bring up two really interesting things for me. What's it like growing up in Singapore and then ending up not just in the United States, but like in what I'll call the cradle of the United States? New York is a pretty intense place. NYU can be a pretty intense place as well. What was that like? It was very different, actually. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I settled in that well the first couple of years. And then by then I was back in Singapore. But definitely it opened a lot of doors for me and it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I think maybe if I hadn't gone overseas, I may not have um, ended up in the startup world. Right. Yeah. And were, did you intend when you went to Stern to work at JP Morgan or work at some financial services company? Or was that just a byproduct of the fact that everybody that was at the Stern School of Business ended up either in finance or consulting? <laughs> Actually, I, wanted, I went to NYU wanting to do psychology. <laughs> and um, my Asian parents said, no, um, <laughs> go to business school because you won't make any money in psychology. <laughs> You'll be talking to crazy people all day. Um, Which is not much different than being in the startup world, frankly. Well, fair enough, but at least it's uh, I choose my patients in a way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I mean, going to Stern, that was like going back to Singapore because everyone was very kiasu, if, um, which means like everyone's just uh, afraid to lose. Afraid to lose, right? Yeah, so I like it. They go over the top for things, and actually, that kind of turned me off investment banking, which is what everyone was gunning for. Um, so I was surprised that I ended up in banking, but maybe more on the personal level. What did you do at J.P. Morgan? That's also interesting to me, too. So you go to J.P. Morgan, you stay there for five years. And I've said this to Chuyen as well. Like, I give you, both of you, actually, a lot more credit than I give myself because I was kind of golden handcuffed into staying in that business for 20-something years and just didn't have the guts to leave. I thought about it a lot. I give both of you a ton of credit for just saying, actually, this isn't for me. I'd rather be doing something else. What, what was the impetus for you to leave? I think money was very good in banking. That's for yeah, sure. That's sure. that's something that you that's that's hard to leave, right? But I guess in terms of um, fulfillment and wanting to achieve something, right? I mean, I think we were around people who who've been who've been lifers there, maybe, and also um, we've seen clients who've done their own businesses. And I think that's that's also something that that really made me think about, you know, is this what I want to be doing? all my life, you know, what do I want to try something else? 
right? And um, and I think definitely having Chu Yen as a co-founder that also really helped me with my decision to leave, because I knew that at least there'll be something, someone I'd be doing with that believe in the same things, right? Well, and that you trust, and that you trusted, right? So yeah, I mean, look, having a co-conspirator is always better than doing something on your own. Chuyen and I do spend a lot of time talking about, at least for me, like how hard it is just to build something from zero to something, right? So what is what was that experience like in your first startup? Actually, we started with something that was already a product, right? So that was a little bit more comforting. There was, there was a path to follow in a way. Um, but through that experience, we learned a lot about the local market, about the product, and we actually re-innovated the entire um, business halfway through, right? And that was in itself a crazy experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I shared with Michael my experience on this part of the journey before. Yeah. Maybe you can share like what was what was the good and the bad of starting the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even with like me <laughs> or like yeah, even... because the dynamic that dynamic is actually really interesting, right? And you're still friends, which is interesting. <laughs> Are we not supposed to be? <laughs> I'm glad you are, but you understand like it gets very tense, right? And it, it's the ups and downs are really high. Like the highs are high, the lows are really low, and it. Yeah, I mean, um, I think starting the business with um, with uh, my best friend was a great decision because uh, we were in it together. Yeah, I mean, it didn't really feel like work because it was very exciting. We were, you know, learning new things about ourselves, hiring people, and spending a lot of time thinking about like two staff. You know, <laughs> and I think that's actually helped me a lot now in the business that I run because I've actually spent that time to think about people, right? I'm sure it's the same for Chewy as well. But then, you know, the lows, that's that's also something else, right? I mean, there's, it's very tense. You, you fight a lot. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you just have to remind yourself why you got into the business and that it should always be friendship over... Um, a business decision. And I think that's probably why we're still friends, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people do say that you shouldn't sort of mix money and friendship or mix business and friendship. And I think it's a mixed bag, actually, right? I think if you do it the right way, and clearly you two have, it can be really powerful because you have that embedded trust from the beginning, particularly if, for people that have known each other as long as you have. You can fall back on the fact that you're operating in good faith. And yeah. that's actually really important. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you just decide what's more important to you, right? Do you, is yeah. it more important to stay angry and get what's, you know, what you think is right? Or, you know, just finding something that works for both parties? Yeah, Angelina and I always say that, like, it's great that we're both such forgetful people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, what were we arguing about yesterday again? Never mind, let's just move forward, right? No, it's great. <laughs> Before we talk about your current venture, I want to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about what it was like to work at SoftBank a little bit and then at Grab too, because I think that those two things maybe kind of launch you into what you're doing today. So if you could talk a little bit about that as well, that would maybe set up the middle part of this conversation. Sure. So um, after I moved to the Philippines, I was looking for something to do. Um, I did some consulting and then also um, I worked at a SoftBank affiliated fund there. At a fund? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. So, I mean, I was um, helping to look for investments in the Philippines and in Indonesia. That was a really great insight into the VC side of the business. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we needed to sp I needed to spend more time in Indonesia back then 
um, compared to Philippines. And I had moved to the Philippines for other reasons. Right. <laughs> she insists that she lost a partner to... <laughs> to other reasons. Let's just say to other reasons. Other reasons. <laughs> right. Um, so that's actually how I um, joined Grab as well. Um, because at that time, SoftBank was a pretty big investor in Grab yeah. already. Yeah. Um, so I moved to Grab and I started uh, the two-wheel business there. Um, at that time, there were only uh, there was only cars, Grab Car, which was just starting out, and Grab Taxi was actually like the key product that they had. Right. Um, and so uh, I started out um, the Grab Express business, which is a delivery business on bikes, and after that, I started Grab Bike, which is a uh, transportation on bikes. You know, it's pretty amazing. Two thousand and fifteen, if I think about it. Mm-hmm. doesn't seem that long ago. And yet in the lifetime of a startup, and particularly in a company like Grab, it feels like decades ago. Where, <laughs> com- where companies that are growing at that pace seem to make so much progress over just a few years period of time. And they've taken literally billions of dollars of investment. Did you get a, did you get a sense of the change even just in the time that you were there? And what was that like? Of course. I mean, I think um, in the time I was there, you see, I saw like the change between also like the uh, focus of the company, which changes pretty quickly every three to six months. Right. Um, but, you know, Grab Car, which is like their core business, which is also profitable in some cities right now, they weren't prioritized at all. Right. They were working out of the pantry with interns, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really? And then, Really, yeah. And look at how that business has grown to where it is today. It's amazing. I think three years feels like it could have been 10 years right in the startup world yeah because now you've done a bunch of different things right so you're from singapore but educated in new york you joined a fund for a while and did some business in indonesia and also in the philippines which is not your home country so now you're outside your home country for a while and then also in a startup so you're not not in like a stable business like you were at jp morgan i know what that's like as well all these things in your life are changing kind of at the same time are there some things you've learned about sort of adaptability and changeability that you feel like you can then use to build your own business? I don't know. I think for me, I don't see things as adaptability or changeability. It's okay. me. I think it's like you solve problems that are that are in front of you, or you you break down uh, you break down you know things that look like they could be uh, big obstacles to you. You break it down and you just focus on the problems and and find a way to make it happen, right? I think to me that's that's something that I want to teach all my staff and I want to I want to kind of share with people, right? It's it's not don't don't let the problems define you or you know get you down because everything can be solved that you just need to to really think about it and look at it in different ways and 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 yeah, just solve it. Break right. it down. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure you agree with me. I mean, there are a lot of <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of the problem-solving skills um, I learned quite well from Angeline because she's she's pretty good at it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've used it now for your current job. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, for me, set an objective, um, aim high, right, and then break it down and work towards it. So, I, yeah, it's and anything that gets thrown your way, like we're we're in a fierce regulatory environment in the Philippines. We could have shut down the business years ago, right? But this is something that I think me and my team really believe in, and that's why we're we're still fighting for, you know, for for regulation and whatnot to really help the drivers and our passengers. Right. So let's talk a little bit now about your new business, which you founded what about a year ago, right? Two years. We've Two been years. Around, yeah. 
Yeah, sorry, I forget we're almost at the end of 2018. I'm just looking at it numerically, but we're it's November. Is it November 1st? It is, right? Yep, yep. Happy <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> sure. Um, so what is the, can you pronounce the name of your business for me? We did this before we started recording too, but I'd like to get it right. Um, so I run a ride-sharing company called Ankas. Um, it's uh, it's a ride-sharing company for motorbikes that does delivery and transportation. Um, and this is done in the Philippines. Uh, we have over a million downloads uh, and over 20,000 drivers on the platform. And we are in four cities right now. Ankas, does it mean something or is it kind of like a made-up word? <laughs> well, um, it actually means in the local language, back riding or pillion riding. Okay. So and and that's what that's what the business is. So it's uh and now it's become synonymous with the business and with people riding uh, back riding for uh, for um to pay someone. There's an idea in the startup world and in the app world that most people who have a smartphone and you know now it's no, it's no longer 2012, right? It's almost 2019. Almost everybody has a smartphone. Penetration across either Asia and Southeast Asia is super high. But the idea has always been that very few people download new apps anymore. So how do you get a million downloads? Well, firstly, have you ever been to the Philippines, Michael? I have. Okay. In Manila? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So traffic in Manila and even Cebu and Davao, the main cities, you know, equivalent to Jakarta or even worse. Bangkok. Bangkok, yes. Right, but the public transportation system is also not as strong as uh, we'd like it to be, and since there there lies the opportunities. I understand the opportunity, but how do you get people just to download the app? Right, just application app discovery on smartphones has just become really hard because it's been so crowded. So yeah. I'm super proud of the fact that you've been able to convince people, particularly in the context of Grab and Uber and Gojek and all these other companies that are kind of in that business. Which I'm curious how you view them as well. Just yeah. getting a million downloads is amazing. Thank you. Um, I mean, the, the team and I worked very hard on this. I think, firstly, um, you, you have to start from a good base, right? So um, from the very start, we've taken the efforts to make sure that we provide a service that is up to standard and even more. Um, so, for example, um, you know, in the Philippines, there's actually a stigma in the big cities into riding bikes. Um, so, so that was actually an even bigger hurdle for us to overcome. What's the, right? what, what's the stigma? Um, so people are afraid of riding bikes. They think it's dangerous. Um, you know, the, um, some crimes are committed on, on bikes, you know, like assassinations or, you know, a ro wow. robbery. Yeah, but so these, the, the, few, the few of these um, incidents actually taints um, the bigger, the bigger group, right? Which is unfair because if you look at the statistics, um, officially there are only there are five million bikes in the Philippines, but unofficial numbers put that at fourteen million, right? And you compare that to cars, there's only one point five million registered cars in the Philippines. Wow. So if you look at that. Um, motorcycles are the main mode of transportation. So to have this stigma in the, the big cities is is a little bit confusing, um, but it's, and, and it's not warranted. And that's something also that we're trying to change mindsets about. Right. Um, so for us, it was very important to make sure that uh, we brought on the best quality drivers onto the platform. So we take the time to do background checks. Um, they have to go through, uh, they have to submit, uh, they have to submit um, the bike registration, clearances from the police, from the NBI, 
uh, and they have to go through training. They have to go through classroom training. They have to go through practical training. They have to safety training. Um, they have to also go through a pillion uh, obstacle course with a pillion to make sure they oh. can really ride. Wow. Right, oh. Because you, know, <laughs> you can get a license, you know, yeah. Yeah, anywhere. Right? <laughs> so even if they had a license and we do require a professional license as well, even though we have th- those licenses, we still need to see whether you can ride. And, and to, be, to be very honest, um, we actually fail about 60 to 70 percent of our wow, drivers. Wow, that's pretty high. Yeah. So, yeah. so just to make sure that the quality is there. And with good drivers and a good attitude, you get happy customers. And I think that's, that's also why we're able to do so well. Because once people have tried the service, they really like it. So how do you even recruit them? Like, where do you even find these guys to begin with? The drivers? Yeah. Um, you find them via Facebook. Um, and we do a lot of on-ground um, activations. And there are also a lot of um, rider groups um, that you can speak to. Uh, I think it's important to find drivers who enjoy being on the road. Right. right. So I think that, that, that helps them because they enjoy being on the road. And at the same time, they can make a good living off of it. Why not? Right. So you also have happy drivers because of that. Um, and so word of mouth was very strong for us. And also we had a very strong social media presence. Um, so um, we, we have a we have a very witty, funny persona. <laughs> uh, it's true. I mean, uh, I, I have if you talk to 10 people who follow our social media, maybe only three to five of them are our customers. And the rest just follow us because we're funny. (laughs) They follow you for the fun. I wanted to make a point about safety. So you may or may not know this, but my mode of transportation for getting around Bangkok where the traffic is also quite bad um, is I ride a Vespa. And I've done that for the past five or six years, actually. So I... I kind of exist in a five kilometer radius and I have 27,000 kilometers on my bike. Wow. Okay. So you can imagine how much I ride. It's not something that I take lightly. And I get a lot of questions about safety, like, aren't you afraid? One of the things that I point out, and maybe this is true in Manila and in Cebu as well, is that because the traffic doesn't move so fast, I felt a lot less safe actually riding a motorcycle in Tokyo where mm. the road speeds are 60, 70, 80 kilometers an hour just inside the city than mm. I do in Bangkok, where I kind of never go above 40 because I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think safety comes in many forms, right? Mm-hmm. One is to make sure that you have the right gear, so having a helmet and that you put on your head, which, yep, sure. you know, is common sense for most people, isn't, uh, <laughs> in some cities. Um, and, you know, making sure that you have the right gear is one, uh, making sure that you have the right safety mindset is another, right? So in this case, it plays to uh, how fast do you drive? Do you take over in a site that the driver can't see you? Right. Um, uh, and also like defensive driving and just being aware of um, the road conditions. I'm not sure about the road conditions in um, Bangkok, but um, the road conditions in the Philippines can be... Uh, Challenging, challenging. <laughs> yeah, to, put, to say the least, right? The potholes and whatnot. So you have to be very aware of your surroundings. So um, the state of mind that you're in is also very important. So it's not like a car you can just like daydream a little bit. Um, just always be, be constantly aware when you're on a bike. I was just going to say, so my driving instruction experience, so when I learned how to drive, it was all about defensive driving, look in your mirrors, look around, always be cognizant of what's going on around you. And I maintain that today, particularly on a on a bike, um, yep. there's a 
Right. So in the Philippines, you have 14 million bikes, right? And, and presumably 14 million bikers. Um, there's only one training school in the entire country for motorcycles. One. Wow. And that's Honda Training School. And it costs a lot wow. <laughs> to enroll. So practically nobody has access to, um, training. to, to training, right? So we've, um, there, was a, there was a survey done this year in March that says that um, one out of three Filipino families uh, own a motorcycle, right? Half of them depend on it for livelihood, and um, half of them depend on it for livelihood, and hundred uh, percent of them are from lower income households. Makes sense. So, so if you think about it that way, um, people are getting on a, getting bikes because it's very cheap to to buy a bike in the Philippines. You can you can buy a bike for a new a brand new branded bike for a thousand US. Hmm. Right, but the down payment required is like you know fifty, sixty dollars. So you pay you pay amortization over time. Um, but these people, they're learning to ride from their dads, you know, their brothers, their boyfriends, um, from YouTube, and some not even not at not at all, right? Because from YouTube. I mean, wow. you, you look at a bike. <laughs> if if they even bother, right? yeah. You know, you look at a bike and you think, oh, it's it's Looks a no brainer, right? <laughs> you get on a bike, you turn it on, you pull throttle, and that's it. So I think that's that's where um, I think it's it's a tragedy because a lot of people are are being involved in unnecessary accidents and unnecessary deaths, mm-hmm. and that's something that Angus is trying to change, right? Um, we've trained about over sixty thousand drivers, you know, even though we only have twenty thousand on our platform, um, and we want to train. Well, my personal advocacy is to train forty million drivers, right? right. Because I think that that's just some, even some form of training or some form of awareness is is going to change the lives of a lot of people. I mean, something simple, yeah, but so powerful. A lot of people talk about having social impact when they're running a business. It's not a charity, right? But it is the ability to again, if you say one third of every family in the Philippines or at least in Manila has a bike, half of and them I, use it in the entire country. Sorry, excuse me, and then half of them use it for you know to live to make a living. That's a lot of people that are going to be impacted. And like you said, there are 14 million bikes, and I can't remember the number of cars, but it's fewer, right? So you're having a gigantic impact, but also providing a way for people to make a living so that they that $50 down payment that they make on a $1,000 bike also provides them to pay off that bike too. And then training them means that you're making the roads safer. You talked about safety in a bunch of different perspectives, and that's one of them, right? Yeah, and that's pretty amazing. Can you walk me through what the customer experience is like, maybe how it's differentiated, and why people keep coming back and using the service? Um, so the customer experience is um, it's it's pretty good. I'm not I'm proud to say. You should <laughs> so be. you you use the app, you book a bike, it comes to you. Uh, usually, it comes within five to five minutes. Um, and then uh, the driver will teach you how to ride the bike if you don't know. Uh, and then he'll be giving you a helmet uh, and a face mask and face mask and shower cap for hygiene purposes. And then um, you know any anything that you you have to say to the driver like oh it's my first time or don't ride too fast or don't take the crazy highway etza you know just take the smaller roads right. whatever to make you feel more comfortable right. And then um, then off you go and um, you arrive at your destination at usually more than half the time it takes for a car. Um, which, I mean, it's also why it's uh, the popular, popularity level of um, this this mode of transportation is so high, right? Right. And what is how do payments get handled? Uh, they pay in cash. They do. Yes. Mm. 
So, so I have to admit, right? I, I'm quite scared of riding on bikes myself. So, I mean, how do you how do you even get like how do you even convince people to begin with? Ah, oh, wow. Um, so I think, like, how do you convince me? How do I convince you? I mean, time, time, shortened amount of time. Well, firstly, yeah. you'll see, you'll see, you'll see people riding on the on the roads with um, our helmets, right? And then I'll tell you that, you know, if um, if you're afraid to try, right, just take it, take it the first time for a short distance, right? Don't take it, don't take it for a long distance. Just take it from like um, point A to point B. It'll take you five minutes. Right, I'll teach you how to ride. You know, so the top three things that I tell people is that if it's your first time, um, please make sure one, you wear your helmet properly. Number two, never hold the driver on his shoulders um, because that's how he drives the bike. So if you're afraid and you turn him, then oh, you're right, go- right. you are going to cause an accident. Right. right. Last thing is um, when a driver turns, don't 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 counter lean against him. Right. Don't lean against him. Yeah. Right. Which is which is sometimes very intuitive for people. Right. Because like, oh my gosh. They're scared. I'm- or I'm going to lean the other way to balance the bike. <laughs> and then that also ends up causing an accident. So just trust your driver. He knows what he's doing. Um, and and uh, lean in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, given all that, I can't imagine like the government being okay with that. I mean, how do you, how do you even deal with that kind of, you know, issues that you have, government, regulatory? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give a little bit of a background, um, we, ever since we've started this business, we've been kind of at odds with um, the uh, one one agency in the government. I wouldn't say the entire government's against us because we've actually gotten some support from certain agencies, but there's a fear of the safety uh, of bikes, right? So, um, when we speak to regulators, we always have um, we always have that thrown back at us. It's bikes are not safe. Uh, you shouldn't be using them, and and that's that's where we've been hitting a roadblock for quite a long time. So to be honest, when we first started the business, we were running it great for about eleven months. Um, at that time, we had over six hundred thousand downloads and sixteen thousand drivers, and the government um, actually came to raid our office. Wow! And it shut us down. <laughs> it was wow, pretty. That's crazy. Pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Were you there? I I was overseas at that time. Oh wow! And you just showed up. Yeah. So um. So the regulators came with every agency that they they knew of because they didn't really know who was in charge. Wow. Um, and they came with uh, maybe ten twenty press, and they were like, yeah. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, okay. it was pretty crazy. Did they do the same thing to your competition? Because at some level, if Grab is operating in the Philippines or other companies are operating in the Philippines, they're, they're run, they should be running up against the same regulatory issues that you are, no? Uh, the Grab Philippines office actually shut down the Grab bike business, right? And the other competitors that we have are actually um, informal services called Habal Habal. So Habal Habal is a local term for motorcycle, taxi. Yeah. But, you know, they don't have training. They, you don't know who the drivers are. It's very loosely organized, if if ever. Um, and they don't have insurance, right? So these guys have been around for, I would say, even 40 years in the country. And uh, and the government's not done anything to stop them. So if you're asking whether they're doing anything to our competitors, they're not. They are just uh, trying to keep a status quo in the country that isn't really working, Mm. Right. Um, because what we provide here is a professional motorcycle taxi service where you know who your drivers are, you know you can trust them, you know you'll have a good ride. And you know, there's insurance and um, the safety levels are much higher. Right. Uh, and I would say that, you know, we run a professional taxi service more so than any competitor that I can talk about in, in the region. 
right? Um, because of the time and the effort that we take to ensure our drivers are are up to par. But just the training of the drivers alone is a massive differentiator. But it also sounds like you're training the riders as well. Oh, you have to, right? Because I never if you want about that, though, it's got to be on both fronts. And the other thing you need to kind of train as well are four-wheeled cars and buses, and how do you coexist with bikes and the road? Because you, you're not going to get rid of bikes. You need to know how to how to deal with them, right? Um, so there's actually a lot of education that needs to go around, and that's also something we're trying to do with the government, right? We're we're trying to tell them that there's a this is a very big problem that you have on hand, right? Why are you trying to shut down something that's trying to make things better? And this is the way that we can work together to try and provide a better service, not just for the drivers but the passengers, and also, I mean, to give more dignity back to the drivers, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of stigma being a biker in the country, right? Look, I completely understand the stigma as well, and that's why I asked you about it. I find that when I'm on the road, even on a Vespa, okay, so slightly better branded bike, but not much better, right? I do find that there's animosity embedded in the car drivers against yep. people that ride that ride motorcycles. And sometimes I feel like taking off my helmet and saying like, You know, I graduated with a degree in economics from Connecticut College, and I worked at Goldman Sachs for a while. Like, are you still going to treat me like that? Yeah. And I can only begin to imagine how the rest of the bikers feel. Like, I understand that completely because I live it every day. And the fact that – I just want to make this point explicitly, if you don't mind, and that is you're running more than a business, right, which is pretty amazing. And you're also – it sounds like you're solving a problem rather than creating a problem for – the regulators, and that you're training the the drivers, you're training the riders, you're providing sort of an economic way out of, like you said, people with um, less opportunities and making the riding experience better for bikers and for automobiles. That sounds like a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, so so something crazy, right? So after we got raided, um, we actually self-suspended the transportation business. Um, wow. Yeah. Self-suspended. Yes, um, because we never really got... Oh, we never really got any orders from the government officially. To yeah. <laughs> but what we wanted to do was we wanted to show a sign of good faith to, mm. to kind of, you know, go into discussions with the regulators on how can we, you know, this is the business that we run. This is the benefits of it. Um, you know, what can we do to meet your expectations to make this something that we can provide to the rest of the country at a level that you're happy with? Yeah. Right. But unfortunately, um, that didn't go as well as we wanted it to go. <laughs> uh, so that's that's when we actually started the delivery business about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. So are you still in the process of educating the regulators? I mean, we we are. I mean, um, I have to say, like, we've been through a journey the last year since our suspension. You know, we've spoken to everybody and anybody who would listen to us, you know, tell this story about, you know, we, what we need, this is something we need for the country. You know, you're, we, there's like 40 million bikers out there, you know, how can we get them to be trained properly to keep the roads, to make the roads safer? How can we, um, you know, give them livelihood in a way that makes them feel proud? Because I can tell you like being an Ankas biker, like for example, when we launched in Cebu, uh, the drivers there were super happy to be part of the, you know, the community, the Ankas biker community. Mm. And that's because 
maybe before they were Hubble Hubble drivers and now um, they're Uncas bikers. And their customers actually refer to them as Po or Opo, which is a, a form of respect. No. Yeah. So they were like, wow. Upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an upgrade. Yeah. Because now they're recognized. It's not easy to become a biker, right? Yeah. As I said, we, we, we fail 60, 70% of them. Yeah. So, so there's, um, there's really something that we're, we're doing right by the drivers. Yeah. So we spoke to everyone. We've, you know, there's, that's when I learned a lot about politics as well. Just, sure. <laughs> you know, from Singapore, that's not something that you, you, you even think about, right? <laughs> so not, well, in recent years, that has changed a little bit, but I think it's nothing like, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the, it's, uh, it's really complicated in the Philippines. There's yeah. local government units, there's uh, national government units, there's, yeah, it's, it's uh, not as exciting as it sounds, but that's something that we had to do. So are you still in a position now where the delivery business is the main business and the ride-hailing business is still suspended or is the ride-hailing business still going on? So we were able to bring back the, tra- the transportation business. Um, and that's because we were able to kind of put a voice, give a voice to the people, to the drivers. Um, we've had unity rides. We've had petitions. Um, we really spoke to everyone and anyone. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, all of that didn't work. I have to say, like, uh, that was disappointing, right? Um, but when we felt like we were left with nothing left, um, nothing else that we could do, we actually went to the courts to seek some clarification on, on our rights. And I'm happy to say that um, we were able to get an injunction, and that's how we've brought the business back right now to serve the people again. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's I, it's not it's not for sure, and it's not a hundred percent that it's going to last, um, because it's a it's a it's an injunction, right? So I think right now, what we're doing is um, it's just the start of the fight, right? So we're still fighting for regulation, we're fighting for safety, um, and we're fighting for the for for our drivers and our customers. Yeah. Mm. The the one word that I want to point out that you used earlier, I just want to reiterate is dignity, right? You can give yeah. somebody money and that's great. But if you can give somebody the opportunity to feel dignified, it's even better, particularly if they're earning an income doing it. Oh, yes. And, and as I said, that's why my drivers are so happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because now they have, now they belong to something. And that sense of belong to something, what was the other thing you called it? A hubba hubba? Hubba it's different. Yeah. Hubba hubba, it's different, right? So now they feel, they feel proud and they know that it's hard to become an Ankes driver. And now yes. they have dignity. That's really cool. So their own, they become their own entrepreneurs, right? So yeah. I'm happy to say also like um, it's own time, own target. So you work when you want to work, right? That's that's the that's the beauty of the ride sharing economy. Um, so you know you can now send your kids to school in the morning. You can send your wife to the market. Um, or you know we've had people who put themselves through school, um, just working part time on ankas because uh, it's very common in the Philippines where people don't finish their degrees um, because they don't have enough money sure. or they have support their family. So with the kind of livelihood you can work with Ankas, just even part-time, you're able to sustain um, work, uh, work and live, uh, work, work uh, and study. And so, yeah, so we've had a lot of, um, you know, thankful drivers who show us their degrees and things like that. So that's actually something that's very heartwarming for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Angeline, that's a pretty incredible story. Unless there's anything else that you want to mention that I have either forgotten or passed over, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time this morning to do this. And Chiyan, obviously, thank you again for sitting on the other side of the table and making this better making this better than it would have otherwise been. I enjoy being on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you both so much. Hey, thank you, Michael. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Too.